Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And I pray that as we continue to work through the book of Ephesians, that uh, you're able to take the time to walk through that each week. And uh, if this is your uh, first time joining us in the midst of this, I want to include you in uh, in my encouragement that uh, each week, I'm challenging you to read through the whole book of Ephesians, six chapters, all right? So if you're just joining in and uh, checking this out for the first time, Jump in and uh, join us in that. Um, When we read scripture continually, it has a transforming effect, doesn't it? And uh, I would encourage you that if you feel like it doesn't have a transforming effect, read it more before you completely rule it out. Okay? And... uh, Really ask and seek, and I love to challenge people as you're reading through Scripture, rather than just read it, read it, ask yourself a question as you're reading it. So maybe your question is, uh, who is God calling me to be? And read, read through Scripture. Or maybe the question is, who is God at all? And read Scripture and uh, pray that God uh, reveal these things to me, uh, reveal to me the truth of uh, who you've called me to be. And then uh, as we're walking through the book of Ephesians, our corporate prayer should be God reveal to us who you've called us to be. Right. So that's been my prayer since uh, before we start into the series. And it's really uh, my prayer as uh, we continue walking forward uh, through life together. And that's what it should be together. And we're going to study that a little more Today, and to kind of introduce this, get us thinking together, um, I was curious, and I uh, I asked this question, and maybe you have a staple answer and how you would respond to this. Uh, what things don't go together? And uh, just to, to highlight a, a few, uh, when I when I I actually just googled this question, what things don't go together, and pulled a few out. And uh, the first one that popped up was toothpaste and orange juice. And uh, how many of you have been the victim of toothpaste and orange I have done this a couple times, and I don't know why I've done it a couple times, because the first time is awful. It doesn't go together. Um, another, <laughs> I thought this was funny, another uh, person wrote and said, college, college essays and happiness don't go together. And then uh, there may be some disagreement on this if you've ever uh, adopted this fashion style. And I'm sure some of you would especially go, yes, this does not go together. Socks and sandals don't, don't go together. And some of you may have been like, well, sometimes it might go together if I don't feel like putting my normal shoes on. I admit I've done that. I'm, I'm guilty. And then another aspect of this when I'm thinking about what things don't go together is uh, have you ever talked to someone and, and asked them, hey, what kind of weird food combinations have you had that maybe you wouldn't normally put together? And so these are just a few. I don't know if you've ever tried these or not. Most of these I have never tried. Uh, peanut butter and pickle sandwich. And I heard some of you go, oh, yeah, that's good. And some of you are like, wait a minute. And, uh, oh, this one was interested. interesting. Melted chocolate on a cheese pizza. Yeah, that's how I felt, too, when I read that. I don't know. I've never really actually tried it. Um, 
Salt and pepper on apples. Now, I guarantee this is probably something my kids would try. Um, oh, this is another one. Another orange juice one. Oreos dipped in orange juice. And these are all things people claim it sounds awful, but it's really good together. So, I don't know. Uh, popcorn and ketchup. <laughs> and this one, now this one is good. I've actually tried this one. It's ice cream and fries. Okay, yeah, see? And even more so, um, like a Wendy's Frosty. It's good. And I say that because I know there's at least a couple people who have never had that before. And the couple people were in my small group, and we were all like, what? Anyway, ice cream and fries. Don't knock it till you try it. Okay. But regardless, okay, really, regardless of what weird combinations you come up with when we ask the question, what things don't go together? Many of us are hesitant or just plain resistant to try them because it goes against everything that we're used to or comfortable with. I mean, how many of you, when I read through that list, there was at least one or two things that you're like, no way, I don't want to try that. Really. We read through us are going, no, I, I have no desire to try this combination. Some of them may include things that we don't like. Others may just cause us to be fearful, or maybe some of us are just so okay with what we have come to like that we have no desire to try something new. Now, the interesting thing about this is that isn't everything I just described a temptation to become a part of the church? When it comes to church... What combinations are you convinced just don't go together? We're going to take a look this morning at Paul's instruction to the church. Everyone say the church. And, the Lord, and Lord willing, my prayer is that we shift our perspective away from what we would have it be. And rather what God desires it to be. And when I talk about it, I'm talking about the church. Everyone say the church. Okay, and we know this is, the, this is who Paul is writing to. All right, this is to equip and encourage the church to be the church that God has called the church to be. And so as we go through this next section of Ephesians chapter 2, my prayer is that we will shift our perspective away from what we, what we would want it to be in and of ourselves, our own selfish desires, and shift it rather to say, God, what do you want the church to be? And where are you desiring to stretch me beyond maybe where I'm comfortable? And beyond maybe where my perception of what this, I think this should look like is. God, open our eyes. So, um, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and I'm going to read this and then we're going to pray together that God would open our eyes. And we remember in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul... uh, Paul's prayer for the church was that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would see. So let's read this together and then pray that God would reveal to us his purposes this morning. Ephesians 2 verse 11 says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, 
having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Heavenly Father, as we evaluate this text this morning, challenge us with this, Lord, stretch us beyond what maybe uh, we have convinced ourselves that these things don't go together. Lord, open the eyes of our heart to see. Help us to understand who you have called the church to be. Not what we want it to be, but who you have called us to be. Lord, we commit this time to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, usually I will give you a main phrase for the morning, a big idea that if you get nothing else, this is what I want you to take away. I'm going to make it even easier for you this morning. I'm going to give you one word. Okay, A single word that I want to challenge you to remember any time we think about the church. The church being those who believe in the name of Jesus to be saved. Which we just talked about last week in the first part of Ephesians 2. That it is by grace you have been saved through faith in Christ. Not of work so that no man can boast. It is a gift. It's a gift of God. And anyone who sees that, who understands that, who believes that, that you are a part of the church. And the single word I want you to remember this morning, it's a really hard one. 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 Everyone repeat that. Okay, we're going to do it again. Say it. Okay. Now that's not too challenging. But we make it way more challenging than it needs to be. And when we come to this passage, as you read through the second part of Ephesians chapter 2, This is the word that you see over and over and over and over again. And the main theme of this text is this oneness, this unity, okay? And so, to to remind you again, because I don't want you to forget, God has called the church to be what? What is it? One, all right? Now, as we look at this text, we start off in verse 11 with really our, our conflict, our problem. And we have a kind of a comparing and contrasting. This is what was and this is what is. Similar to what we talked about last week. Those of you who are here who listened to the message, you remember what did we keep saying last week? You were once what? I heard a couple of you. Start with a D. All right, we're going to say it again. You were once what? Dead. All right. But God. Okay. But God. Rich in love. His mercy. Saved by grace through faith. 
And so now we repeat this pattern in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So we have a classic example of some biblical name calling going on here. Okay? And to bring some light to this, to help us understand better what this is referring to, in Genesis chapter 17, we're going clear back in Genesis, and God made a covenant with Abraham. And in this covenant, there was a physical aspect, but also a spiritual aspect, where God said, this is how you are going to be set apart from everyone else. And God said, the way this is going to happen is everyone from you and every generation past you is going to be circumcised in the flesh to show that you are set apart. And that is where we have established the nation of Israel, okay, the Jewish people. And then from then on, however, we see throughout Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, as in Christ there is a new covenant, a new promise of life through Jesus. We saw that there was a tension where the Jews are going, you, you are not a part of the promises. You do not receive the same blessings. You, you don't get this. And though God intended very clearly to set aside himself a people group, there is nowhere in scripture that states that God intended for the Jewish people to adopt this attitude, this mindset of superiority. But rather, it was set apart that you might be blessed and that you might also be a blessing through God. And so now, all of a sudden, you come to this passage in Ephesians 2, And it's a reminder to the Gentile people, those who were once separated, those who were once alienated from the promises that were given to the circumcised, those set apart through the covenant of Abraham, the promises. And he says, you who were once called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Now, there might be many of us who can understand that. Maybe you've experienced a time in your life where I just feel like I'm without hope. I feel like I'm, I hear the promises of God, but I don't understand how they apply to me. I don't, I don't grasp this. I don't get this. And in this text, he's reminding the Gentile people, those who were once separated, that, whoa, whoa, that's in the past. There's something new here in Christ. And that's where verse 13, and we have another powerful but statement in Scripture, which says, but now, in Christ Jesus, look at this, you who once were far off have been brought Near by the blood of Christ. In Christ, that which once separated you from Him is now vanquished. The opportunity for new life. This doesn't mean, get this, this does not mean that we take advantage of this gift. In fact, Paul talks really specifically, we see this a lot in the book of Romans. Where the temptation is, oh, 
I was once separated, but now in Christ, I've been brought near. And no one, you know, nothing can separate me. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the temptation is to go, oh, I can do what I want. I'm safe. I've got fire insurance, as some people might put it. I, I believe in the name of Jesus to be saved because I don't want to end up in hell. And there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people in the church. I'm saying the church broadly. Okay? Who see it that way. And we use it as an excuse. They, oh, I'm, I believe I'm redeemed, but I'm, I'm not going to live it. I'm going to continue in sin. I'm going to continue living in ways I know are contrary to these promises. And Paul says to the Roman church, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what's his answer? By no means. And in the Greek, it's a double negative. It's two, two no's. It's like, no, no. Don't do that. And so this is not, when, when we talk about you who were once far off have now been brought near, this is not an excuse to take advantage of this gift. But, church, we have a hard time just getting past separating people, labeling people. We have a hard time getting past this first step, which is what the issue has been here for the Gentile people. Is that even though the promises are true in Christ, and believe in the name of Jesus to be saved, and the Jewish people were recognizing this, there was still a tension. And so we can sit here, we can sit here, we can say, yes, anyone who believes in the name of Jesus to be saved is a part of the church. But do we act that way? Do we live that out? And so what might be some examples of us doing this? What, what might be some ways we do that? If we label someone based on their behaviors, who they've always been, okay? So examples of that. If we label someone as a drunk, and we can never see past that. And no matter how much they change, we, we have this picture in our minds, this is who they are. Or we label someone as an addict. No matter how much they're seeking to improve, no matter how much they're changing in that, we label them as that. This one might be hard, especially in the church. We label someone as a homosexual and we say, no way. I'm, I'm keeping a major arm's length here. I'm not, not going there. You know, people, oh yeah, everyone needs the love of Jesus, but whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, hold up. Label someone as an outsider. Someone who doesn't belong. Now, I want to clarify with you. This is in no way saying we should not call out sin. I am not saying that. If we have someone who is claiming the name of Jesus, we are commanded by Scripture to keep them accountable to truth. But if someone is in Christ, and they are seeking to be redeemed, and they are seeking to abolish these past patterns then it should be the farthest thing from our mind to separate them and label them and say, no, you don't belong because of your past. And 
as we do that more and more, we're no different than the Jews who said, well, you, you can't be here. You don't belong. And the truth in Ephesians 2 is, you are all one separate. We are all a part of this. We are all in need of Christ. We are all without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. As I was thinking about a way to illustrate this concept of being brought near, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, my, my second-born daughter. She's three years old. And her love language is physical touch. From the time she could walk and talk, she would be our, our one who would come into the kitchen and she would say, I just want to rock. You know, you take her and she just wanted to cuddle. She just wanted to rock. She's still that way today. But one of the things, every, every night after we've sang our song and prayed and we tucked them into bed, you get, reach down, you give her a hug and a kiss. But if you don't hug her close enough... She stops you, says, you need to give me a hug. And you've got to get really close and really tight and really wrap your arms. Otherwise, it doesn't count. And I thought, what an awesome illustration of what it really looks like to be brought near. And how much that models even my own guilt in approaching how do we interact with people who I just, I have a hard time with her. Maybe I just think that it doesn't mix with what we're trying to do. And I get just close enough to maybe try and communicate that, hey, you're a part of this, but I don't go far enough. I don't really take the time that I need to take to invest in these people, to walk with these people, to embrace these people as they're seeking to live like Christ because that's, that's what I want to do. And sometimes we need to stop and evaluate who are the people that I've pushed away that I really need to bring near. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both. What is that word? He has made us both what? One, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That which once was divided has now been made, what is it? One. So the question then is, what does it look like for the church to be one? And I'm going to give you several specific points from this text of what it looks like. Firstly, we recognize this is what it looks like for the church to be one. We recognize that the wall of hostility has been broken down by Christ. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in how many bodies? One body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
Now, specifically here, Paul is referring to that tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. He's saying, you, you were once separated. Okay, that's no more. In Christ, you are one. You are one body in Christ, one unit. And through Christ, this wall, this wall of hostility between the two of you has been torn down. So what does it look like for the church to be one? It means we don't rebuild this wall. We don't rebuild the wall of hostility amongst each other, amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not contribute to rebuilding that wall of hostility that has been torn down in Christ. How much time, church, do we waste fretting and stewing over petty conflict? We avoid people. We pretend that we're okay when we're really not. We allow earthly disagreements to get in the way of truth. The truth that we were dead. Everyone say dead. But through Christ we have become what? What does it look like for the church to be one? Secondly, we recognize that no one, hear this church, no one is so near or so far that they are not in need of the peace of Christ. We recognize that no one, everyone say no one, is too near, is so near or so far that they are not in need of the peace of Christ. Look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in how many spirits? One spirit to the father. The message is the same for those who are far off and for those who are near. The beautiful thing about the church is we're all at different places in our spiritual journey, but we're all doing this together for the same goal, for the same purpose. And the only thing that tends to stand in the way of that is ourselves. When it becomes more about what I want the church to be rather than what God desires it to be, when it comes, becomes more about what, who, who I want to present myself as rather than humbling myself, recognizing that I too am in need of the grace of God through Christ. And the amazing promise is we both have the same access to the Father through one Spirit. Our goal, listen, to this is a hard truth, church, and I, I, I wrestle with this. Weekly, okay? I am not exempting myself from any of this. Our goal cannot and should not be to bring people into the church to change them. Rather, our mission should be to introduce people to Christ and allow Him to transform them. I'm going to say that again because this has been a truth that has rocked me this week. Our goal cannot and should not be to bring people into the church to change them. Rather, our mission should be to introduce people to Christ and allow Him to transform them. That has got to be our mission. What does it look like for the church to be one? 
We recognize that the foundation on which the church is built is not a foundation of our own building. Verses 19 and tw- through 21, look at that. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Okay, so that's truth. That's scriptural truth. God's word. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Notice that the only way that the whole structure grows into a holy temple is when Christ is the cornerstone that is holding it all together. And if you remember back, the very first message that I preached here when I was candidating was from Hebrews chapter 12. Where the focus comes back to Christ. Let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ has to be the cornerstone off of which everything else flows. Everything else is measured. Everything else is built. Because if anything else takes the place of that, the foundation starts to crumble. And we lose the purpose to which God has called us to as the church. What does it look like for the church to be one? This is the last one. We recognize that the building of the church should be an ongoing process. Verse 22. In Him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This isn't you have been built together. It's you are being built together. This is an ongoing process that we have to tell ourselves that we as a church, until we are together in eternity, should never stop asking the question, how can we continue to build up and further the mission of God through Christ. We should never get to a place where we're comfortable and we say, I'm just okay, I'm okay with the way things are. Because there is no place, there is no local church that has reached perfection. We will not reach perfection until we are with Christ all at once. It's not going to happen. But we should strive for excellence. We know what God has called us to as a church. And we can seek to do that well. But it has to start by us going, I don't want this to be what I think the church should be, but rather what God desires it to be. So how do we apply this truth? I'm going to give you one point of application. How many? Yeah, I told you it's the word for today. One point of application, and that's a question for you. Okay? 
The question for you to ask yourself is this. In what ways am I contributing to the division of the church? In what ways am I contributing to the division of the church? This, listen to this, this is not a message that is intended for you to look around and claim that you have figured out who the problem people are. It's not. This is an opportunity for each of us to evaluate in our own lives where have we allowed this to become okay? Where have we allowed division to become okay? Is there someone in the family of Christ that I need to be reconciled with but am convinced they need to come to me first? Is there an area of my life that I've become okay with slander or gossip, disguising it in some other way? Are there people who I have labeled and internally refused to see them as part of the family of Christ, so much so that I have failed to sit with them, talk with them, listen to their stories, and point them back to the same hope that I need? Are there selfish perceptions that I have about the church? That have limited my vision of what God's desires are. But I am so convinced that I will speak and act hurtfully until I see my plan and purpose come to be. In what ways am I contributing to the division of the church? This is a hard, hard question to ask. But... If our desire is that of Scripture, then God in Christ has called us to be what? So what does that look like? I have to recognize my part in causing division and seek to vanquish that. Now, I want to give us a visual of this. And if you'll participate with me here, I think it'll be a powerful one. Okay, so don't, don't moan and groan and mumble at me, but I want you to all stand up. Now, here's what we're going to do. The outside is going to come in. We're going to come in across rows, and we're going to lock arms right now. Everyone. Come in all together, okay? So we're going to scoot in. We're going to lock arms, everyone together. And don't worry, if there was a fire, there's still exits open. (laughs) I want you to stop, I want you to look. Now a minute ago, I could have taken off through any section. And now, if someone tried to get through this, and break through this wall, what's going to happen? You see, this is when we're most powerful. Church, this is what Satan is going to work so hard to try and divide. Do not let yourself be part of that. Everywhere you go, every place you are, as we get together here, this is what we should look like. 
No matter what happens, no matter what trouble we may feel towards someone, this is what God has called us to. Because when this unit steps out of this place into a world that is divided, people long for this kind of unity. So I want to challenge you. The next time you ask the question, what is the church supposed to look like? You answer it with a single word. The church is to be. Heavenly Father, as we recognize the power in this, may we do everything we can to unite together for the purposes you've called us to. Father, may we love people as we desire to be loved. May we recognize needs. Most of all, may we recognize that through Christ we are one body. And that you would be glorified in this place and outside of this place in the world that people would see us as one. Convict us, challenge us, bring us to repentance and confession in the areas where we are adding to the division in the church. And may we vanquish that. Do not give Satan ammunition in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name.